Hello, my Maccabees. It is episode 11. What will the Wheel of Ghastly Tales have in store for us today? Find out next on the Mod Macabre podcast. Right, everyone. Good morning or good evening, whatever time you're listening. Uh, I'm going to start this episode off by, first of all, thanking everyone for the feedback that you send in. Of course, you guys know I absolutely read every message I receive. And some of the feedback I got over the weekend uh, was from a Maccabi, and I really appreciate it. And she basically just asked me to talk a little bit about myself so that my audience could get to know me a little better. And honestly, I hadn't really considered including that in the Mod Macabre podcast because, well, I'm in the habit and the profession of delivering just stories to you at the ready. Um, But I'll I'll comply a little bit here because I want to talk about the weekend. I actually, I'm on a super duper high this morning because I had such a great weekend. You guys, I got to watch my oldest son run in a cross-country race. Uh, It was at this beautiful old Civil War battlefield in Baton Rouge, and he did a great job. I am a proud mama. And I also got the distinct pleasure of watching the Buffalo Bills beat the Kansas City Chiefs in an epic rematch from last year's playoffs. Now, okay. I'm just going to say whether you like sports or you don't, or you have a team or you don't, it doesn't matter. If you know, you know, the highs and the lows of being a football fan are incredible. There's absolutely nothing more than I love than a great matchup on the field, except for perhaps true crime, which is why we're here today. Guys, it is time to give this wheel of ghastly tales a spin and find out what we're going to be talking about today. So let's get to it. Here we go. Okay, so this is interesting. We did not get creepy crime for the first eight episodes, and now we're going to go back to back with mid-bits in the middle. We have landed on creepy crime once again. Um... And it's kind of funny, of course, I think you guys already know at this point, some of these categories definitely blend together because creepy crime is committed by terrible people. So I guess it's just dealer's choice for me uh, on what I deliver to you in that category. And today, hmm, you know what, Maccabees, I think we're going to talk about stalking because <laughs> there's absolutely nothing creepier than someone being ridiculously obsessed with another person and making their lives a living hell. Um, We may do one or two of these stories today because unfortunately I've, I've I've got plenty at the ready. And so we will start off You guys, we're going to start off by talking about Mary Stouffer and Ming Sen Shu.
Okay, so before we get started, this episode does have a trigger warning and it's got content that contains disturbing accounts of violence and sexual assault. So listener discretion is advised. Mary Stouffer was a high school math teacher in Roseville, Minnesota, and she also was an extremely devout religious woman. She was happily married to her husband, Irv Stouffer, and they had two children together whose names were Elizabeth and Steve. In 1980, Mary and Irv decided that they wanted to better serve in a religious capacity with their lives, and so they had made the decision to move their family to the Philippines to embark on a four-year Baptist missionary trip. With the date of their departure quickly approaching, Mary decided to treat herself and her daughter Beth, who was eight years old at the time, to a girls' day at the local beauty salon. It was, for all intents and purposes, just another normal day in Roseville, Minnesota. Except that it wasn't. What Mary didn't know was on that day, May 16, 1980, an individual who had been stalking her for 15 years, who, unbeknownst to her, had been following her, monitoring her every move, and had even planned four prior kidnapping attempts on her which were unsuccessful, this individual was about to make his very successful move. As Mary left the beauty salon that day, holding her daughter Beth's hand, a man who she did not recognize approached them and he had a pistol. At first, Mary thought it was just a carjacking, so she handed the man her keys and she was just like, hey, take it. Here, take my car. But instead, he forced Mary to get into the driver's seat and he climbed into the back with Beth. He told Mary that he would hurt her daughter if she didn't immediately drive north, so of course she did. They ended up in a very remote and secluded area in Anoka County, Minnesota, and when they got to this wooded area, this stranger, this kidnapper, forced Mary and Beth out of the car where he tied them both up and stuffed them side by side into the trunk of the car. Mary felt the car begin to move, but she could not figure out the direction that they were heading. She was absolutely terrified in that moment, not for her own safety, but for the safety of her daughter Elizabeth, of course, and they drove for a short while, and then she could feel the car coming to a stop. So she knew in that moment that when that trunk lid opened, that she was going to have to fight, make a scene, cause a commotion. She didn't know where this was going, but she knew she was running out of time. Unfortunately, what she didn't know in that moment was that he had stopped in a smaller, underdeveloped area near Roseville, and that very unfortunately, there were two little boys that were riding their bikes by where the kidnapper had stopped the car, and he did that to get out and check on Beth and Mary. One of the little boys stopped his bike towards the front of the car, but the other little boy, very curious six-year-old by the name of Jason Wilkman, he curiously approached the back of the car when he heard the struggle Mary was putting up and the trunk was opened by the kidnapper and he said, whoa, because he saw them. He saw Mary and Beth tied up 
and as he turned to run away, the man grabbed him too and shoved him in the trunk with the other two. So now Mary's in this trunk of this car and she doesn't just have her own daughter who's eight years old, but now she's got this other child and of course she's a mom. So she is very concerned about their welfare and she was doing her best to reassure them that everything was going to be okay. The car drove for a while and then came to another stop. Mary later learned that their location was the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area. When the trunk lid opened again, the man reached inside and he only pulled out Jason Wilkman and then he closed it again. When the car started moving after that, Mary prayed that the man had just let the little boy go. She continued to reassure Elizabeth that they needed to pray and that God would protect them. And when the trunk lid opened for the last time, the man grabbed Mary and Beth and he forced them into his apartment residence in Roseville. Once inside, they were thrown into a bedroom closet that was just 21 inches wide by four foot long. It was very small and he chained them together and closed the door, leaving them there together, terrified in the dark. Naturally, at this point, Mary's husband, Irv, knows that something isn't right. She and Elizabeth were supposed to have been back from the salon, but they hadn't returned. And of course, no one had cell phones in the 1980s. So he called the salon and he was told that they had left there safe and in good spirits. He started to phone the local hospitals to ask anyone matching his wife and daughter's descriptions had maybe been brought in from a car accident, but he was told no. Irv waited a few hours more, even though he knew in his gut that something was very, very wrong. And then finally, he just couldn't take it anymore, so he drove to the local police station to report Mary and Elizabeth missing. And he didn't know it then, but virtually at the same time as he was filing his report, a distraught mother was also filing a missing persons report on her six-year-old son, Jason. The authorities were soon busy combing the scene where Jason's friend had told them to look. He said, hey, this is where I saw him get abducted. It took no time at all to discover that the two missing person cases were related because the license plate to Mary's car had been tore off and left in the underbrush as the kidnapper was trying to quickly get away. So now back in the closet that Mary and Elizabeth were being held in, Mary was telling her daughter Bible stories to keep her calm and to try to keep her mind preoccupied with something other than all of the horrible things that were going through her head, you know, as to what was about to happen at this point. It was during one of these moments the following morning on May 17th that the closet door was violently opened and Mary was dragged from the closet leaving Elizabeth inside alone. Mary was thrown onto the bed and she was finally able to get a clear look at her kidnapper who was a complete stranger to her. Or so she thought. And when we come back to our story after a short break, not only will we find out who Mary's kidnapper actually was, but Maccabees, you are not going to believe it. It is an absolute gasp moment for sure. And we will be right back in two minutes.
As Mary sat on the bed looking at this stranger who had abducted her and her daughter at gunpoint, she was startled to hear him speak from the center of the room where he was standing. With a terrifying grin on his face and hands on his hips, the man said to her, Do you remember me? When Mary answered no, that she didn't know him, the man became visibly angry and rushed towards Mary, grabbed her and threw her back down, pushing his face into hers. He screamed at her that he was Ming Shu, and she realized in that moment that this man, who she knew was about to rape her as he tore the clothes from her body, he was one of her former students. She had taught him math in 1965 when he was in the ninth grade. She only taught him for one year and it had been 15 years between her teaching him and him kidnapping her in 1980. So just to get some numbers out to you here, when Ming was a ninth grade student in 1965, he was 14 years old. Mary was 36 years old when she taught him. And when he kidnapped her in 1980, he was 29 years old and she was 51. So if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, so like what, did he just get up one day 15 years later and decide to kidnap his old high school math teacher? Like what, what happened? Honestly, Maccabees, I wish I could tell you yes, because that would be a lot less creepy. But what actually happened is that Ming Shu, he actively stalked Mary Stover for 15 years. And as we know now, it started when he was in her high school math class in 1965. He spent the class time enjoying her quote unquote company and then he would spend other classes and evening hours writing very detailed and graphic stories about her and him together in a relationship sexually he had versions that were both consensual and non-consensual story plots he often fantasized about raping her while he was in her class and he wrote many detailed stories about that as well Ming graduated from high school in 1969, and then he found out that following year that Mary no longer worked for the school district. Of course, in his warped and twisted mind, he thought that she had left there because she just couldn't bear the thought of being there in that school without him, which, as we all know at this point, couldn't have been further from the actual truth. And what actually happened was that Mary had been offered a job opportunity to be a math professor at Bethel University and she accepted it. It was obviously pure coincidence, but that was not the case in Ming's warped and twisted mind. Now, however, in 1970, Ming had a problem. He had no idea where she had actually gone to, and now that he had graduated and wasn't seeing her every day, coupled with the fact that he had no idea where her actual location was, he began to spiral out of control with his disturbing fantasies. He started to track her down in the mid-1970s, and of course, that wasn't an easy task back then, like it would be today, honestly, with all the resources of the internet we have, which is super terrifying, right? Anywho, in 1975, 
Ming thought he had finally located her. And so in the early morning hours, he broke into what he thought was her house. But once inside, he realized he had made a mistake. And at that point, he already had the couple who actually lived there who was Mary's in-laws, so Irv's parents. He had them tied up, and so he held them at gunpoint, and he threatened their lives and their family members' lives if they told anyone at all. And so they didn't. And it was only after Mary was kidnapped five years later that they told this story to authorities. So finally in 1980, 10 years of obsession and surveillance and stalking, it all came together for Ming when he finally learned that Mary worked on the Bethel University campus and he actively stalked her for months. He followed her home, he learned where she actually lived, and he had made at least four kidnapping plans and somewhat of attempts, I guess, and it never worked out. It was also later discovered that Ming, who owned an electronics business, he had broken into Irv and Mary's home through an open half window in their basement, and he installed listening devices in their bedroom. And that's the reason that they decided later on that he made his move when he did because he was very aware of their upcoming move uh, to the Philippines. And so he knew that if he was going to carry out his warp and twisted plan, that it had to be now or never. So now you know who kidnapped Mary and Elizabeth Stouffer and why he did it. So just to recap how crazy this was, his name was Ming Shu. He had Mary Stouffer as his ninth grade math teacher for one year when he was 14 years old. He became obsessed with her and he stalked her for 15 years before finally successfully kidnapping her on March 16th of 1980. And so now this brings us back to Ming's apartment, right? Where he has left Elizabeth in the tiny closet and he has Mary in the bedroom where he revealed his identity to her and told her that he had been looking for her for a very long time. Over the next 53 days in captivity, Ming raped Mary Stouffer multiple times, living out his sick and twisted fantasies that consumed him for 15 years. He would often videotape the assaults, ensuring Mary was tied up and bound the way he had portrayed her to be in the violent acts and the detailed stories that he had written. After raping Mary, Ming would keep the videotape rolling and he would force her to be interviewed. He would ask her questions. He would ask her these weird like interview session questions. And in one of these sessions, he told her that she had hopelessly ruined his life by giving him a B minus in algebra, which cost him a college scholarship. And because of that, he was drafted into the Vietnam War where he was captured and he was made a prisoner of war, a POW. Now, shocker alert here. This wasn't true at all, obviously. In actuality, he had been voted most likely to succeed in high school, and he had gotten a full scholarship to the University of Minnesota. He was never drafted. He never served in the Vietnam War. 
In one of the instances, after raping Mary, he interviewed her on camera stating that it angered him that she wasn't physically affectionate with him while he was raping her. When she told him that that was impossible, he became very angry and he dragged Elizabeth, her daughter, out of the closet and he placed a bag over her head and told Mary that he would suffocate her if she didn't kiss him on the lips. So of course she did and he took the bag off Elizabeth's head. This guy was a wackadoo. Ming held both Mary and Elizabeth in captivity for 53 days. The only time that they ever left the house was when, strangely enough, Ming had a job fair that he wanted to attend in Chicago, and so he rented a drivable Winnebago, and he kept Mary and Elizabeth tied up in the, in the back of this Winnebago the whole time. When they returned from Chicago, Ming placed them back into the closet, on July 7th of 1980, Ming went to work at his electronics store that he had been doing, you know, in the prior weeks, just keeping the girls locked in this closet. So at this point, Mary had been intently studying how Ming had her and Elizabeth bound together. There was a cable connecting the two of them together, and that same cable was attached to the hinge pin on the tiny closet door. She knew if she could get the hinge pin out that they would be free. So Mary scooted over to it and later in an interview, she stated that nobody was more surprised than her when the hinge pin came out as if it were greased. With Elizabeth still cable tied to her, Mary worked to shove the closet door aside and they both wiggled their way out of it. Mary used Ming's phone to call 911 and she identified herself. She was told that the police were on their way. Now, Maccabees, I'm just going to pause here for a moment. I'm going to ask you a question because this is the only part of this story that completely confuses me. So here's the question that I have for you. If you had been kidnapped for 53 days and you just freed yourself and your daughter and you called the police... What is the next thing that you would immediately do? I'm going to pause here so you could think about it. What is the very next thing that you would do? Now, <laughs> while creating this episode, I was sitting here with one of my great friends, Michelle, and I asked her this question and her answer was exactly in line with my thinking. She was like, I would get the F out of there. Like she said, I would start knocking on neighbors' doors, begging them to let me hide, just get as far away from that place as I could. And I completely agree with her. And now I don't want you to think that I'm judging Mary and what she did next because I'm not. I mean, it's really easy for myself or anyone for that matter to say that you would know what to do or not to do in that situation if you're not the one who'd been kidnapped, right? So after all, she had spent 53 days of being psychologically and physically abused by this man who at this point, he had her convinced that he had cameras and microphones all throughout the house. And of course she believed him because he had put listening devices in her home. And she knew that at that point, because during her time in captivity, he had told her very intimate details about conversations that he knew about that had happened between her and her husband in the confines of 
their own home. So like she obviously believed that he was watching them at all times. But with that said though, I promise you Maccabees, I promise you the last thing that I would do in that situation is sit and wait by the front door for the police to come. And that's exactly what she did. She and Elizabeth sat by the front door, but at some point she was like, you know, this probably isn't the best idea in case he comes home. So she moved them into the backyard and they hid behind an old car until two unmarked police cars pulled into the driveway and they were finally freed and going home. Very quickly after their rescue, Ming Shu was arrested at his electronics store. When the police found Mary and Elizabeth, one of the very first questions that they asked her was if the missing six-year-old boy, Jason Wilkman, was with them. It was only then that Mary realized that the little boy that had been in the trunk with her, he had never made it back to his family that day. Ming was immediately ordered to stand trial. The kidnapping of Mary and Elizabeth Stouffer was a federal offense because he had crossed state lines with them tied up in the back of that Winnebago. And before the trial even began, Ming tried several times to get his fellow inmates that were getting released soon to kill Mary and Elizabeth so that they couldn't testify against him. And during the kidnapping trial, Ming lunged from his chair and tried to get to Mary while she was testifying on the witness stand, but he was tackled by the courtroom personnel before he could get to her. He was found guilty of kidnapping and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. So what I haven't told you yet, and what both investigators and Mary found out after her rescue, is that when Ming had taken six-year-old Jason Wilkman out of the trunk that day, he had dragged him to a nearby woodline and beat him to death with a metal rod. His body still had not been recovered at that point, and Ming agreed to tell the authorities where it was at only if they agreed not to charge him with first-degree murder. They reached a plea agreement and the authorities recovered the body of the little boy who was so tragically at the wrong place at the very wrong time. So just to recap here, the federal kidnapping trial had concluded with Ming trying to physically harm Mary during her testimony. He was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison when the second trial kicked off for the murder of Jason Wilkman. Now... Maccabees, you would think, right, that since Mary had to testify again at the second trial that they would, I don't know, put some sort of precautions in place to help keep her safe, right? Nope. They, they didn't do that. It didn't happen. And as a matter of fact, what actually happened was Ming somehow was able to smuggle a pocket knife into the court. And once again, while Mary was testifying against him, he jumped up from his chair and this time he actually got to her and he slashed her across the face, cheek and chin, and she required 63 stitches in order to repair the laceration. After that, the judge allowed the trial to continue, but Ming had to be tied to his chair for the rest of the proceedings. Ugh. At the conclusion of the second trial, Ming was found guilty of murder and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But here's what really irritates me about that. 
Instead of being sentenced to serve the 30 years for Mary and Elizabeth's kidnapping, and then after that was complete, start serving the 40-year sentence for the murder of Jason Wilkman, so in essence, a total of 70 years combined, Ming was given the 40-year sentence to be served concurrently with the 30-year sentence, which basically means that he serves the two sentences at the same time. So the maximum amount of years he was sentenced to was 40 years, and he was eligible for parole in the year 2010. So the good news is, is that when 2010 came rolling around, a judge in Minnesota, despite the best efforts of Ming's defense attorney, who argued that prison had rehabilitated him, she made a ruling that Ming was still a sexually dangerous person, and she very much believed that if he were to be paroled, that he would find Mary and her family and make good on his continued promises to harm them. Her judgment made it impossible for Ming to be paroled to anywhere other than the state of Minnesota's sex offender institution. So he is never going to be able to live in a house or in the community ever again. And after it was all said and done, Mary Stouffer and her husband Irv actually completed their missionary work in the Philippines and she has continuously shared her story with others so that other women who have been raped know that they're not alone. Mary has made it very clear over the years that the ordeal never defined her and that she has always relied on her faith in God and the love of her family to get her through. Elizabeth Stouffer shares the same outlook as her mother and she stated that Ming took 53 days of our lives. If we let him have one more by living in fear, then evil wins, and we are not going to let that happen. All right, Maccabees, that is the conclusion of Season 1, Episode 11 on Creepy Crime. I was thinking in the beginning of this episode that we were going to get to maybe two stories about weird stalking cases, but I guess not. And that's okay. Don't worry though. You know that all of my creepy stories will stay at the ready and I will see you later on this week around the campfire for a new episode of the Mod Macabre podcast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Mod Macabre podcast. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please click on the five-star rating. And if you love the format of random creepy stories of the strange and unusual delivered by my campfire in story format, please subscribe to the Mod Macabre podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. New episodes are launched every Tuesday and Friday morning. Thank you again for listening.